Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Rick Wagner here, getting it right on Kansas KGLN. All uh, four of those stations, 1192.7, 980, and 101.3. And, of course, on the Internet, and you can catch our podcast, too, if you miss the show or miss a part of it. You can go to, well, you can go to a lot of places. You can go to Amazon and Oh, gosh, uh, iTunes and Podbeam and everything. But if you want to just click on the website, you'll see them there, too, at uh, Rick Wagner's Law. Not Rick Wagner's Law. <laughs> no, this is uh, the RickWagnerShow.com, and you can go right there. Yes, I'm your political Viking here, this uh, swinging the double-headed axe of truth, justice, and the American way. And it's a, been a terrible week, hasn't it? Uh, the stuff out of Israel is just heartbreaking. I don't think there's a... a another way to put it i mean you can be pretty used to conflict and war and still find some of this stuff atrocious and evil a lot of this stuff is just evil i'm sorry to sound you know like that we all know we live in a nuanced society right everything's a shade of gray yeah these are no shades of gray over there i mean let's just not kid ourselves about that and so I thought I'd talk about something maybe a little different than what we've been hearing all week, uh, and that is a little context about Palestine and Israel. There's These people don't seem to understand, a lot of them, about Palestine. And Palestine is not a country. It is not a nation state. It has never been a nation state. It is a region. And... Let's just look at the history a little bit. If you look back at the history of Israel, you can see Israel can trace its connections to that area about 3,000 years. Uh, the kingdoms of Israel and Judea were established, uh, gosh, way back in the Iron Age. And Jerusalem was even the capital after that. And it's all sorts of religious texts that crisscross that, uh, not only the Torah, but archaeological findings. And Assyrian and Egyptian recounts will talk about uh, the people of Israel in that area, and recognizing those kingdoms. So it's not like that they just showed up from some somebody else and said, oh, this looks nice, we'll move here. That's not a colonization thing, okay? If you look at the Palestine whole idea, you need to understand the history there. For a long time, several centuries, uh, th- this area was under control of various empires and so forth. For several centuries, the Ottoman Empire, now this is the Ottoman Turks, right, who had been around for a number of centuries, uh, had gotten, uh, you know, tried to push into Europe, had uh, taken over Greece, all sorts of stuff. Well, the Ottomans, which were really based in Turkey as we think of it now, had control over a whole bunch of this territory, including what's now Israel and the region of Palestine. And under the Ottomans, the land was organized into administrative units, but not delineated by national identity. Rather, the focus was kind of on administrative efficiency for a great big empire. Now, following World War I, 
Then the Brits took control of the territory under the League of Nations mandate, uh, and they named it the British Mandate of Palestine, the whole area. And once again, it's a region that they oversaw. They picked it up as part of a whole bunch of things that happened after World War One. Most of us focus on World War One on what happened in Europe. But remember, there were significant battles that were fought in Africa, Egypt, and Syria. And for those of you that like Lawrence of Arabia, uh, think about that. Remember, Lawrence, E. Lawrence, was a British officer fighting the Ottoman Turks along with the freedom fighters in uh, Syria and places like that and Egypt and whatnot, that whole area where we're trying to, you know, throw things off. But that was part of the battle. So the Brits were fighting the Ottomans, the Turks, in that part of the world. And so when World War One ended, they just assumed control over that area uh, as part of a United Nations mandate. Well, un- uh, what is it? The League of Nations mandate, right? So they had control over it afterwards. And by the way, if you want to read an interesting, very interesting discussion of what that time was like and the battles there, which we don't get much, uh, we get the movie Lawrence of Arabia and a couple other things, but you can read uh, Lawrence's own uh, description of it. It's called Revolt in the Desert by T.E. Lawrence. Very good if you ever want to read that. He's a very good writer. And after that, so the Brits have it. Okay. And so throughout the history, uh, this whole thing has been part of larger empires. It was never an independent nation state of Palestine. It was part of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and various Islamic caliphates, and ultimately the Ottomans. They were all subjects of these various regimes at some point. No distinct national identity separate from, you know, these large administrative holds. It was only during that British mandate period we talked about that the Palestinian nationalism began to crystallize. In other words, people in that area started, you know, thinking of themselves as a distinct group. And it really came to the head when they did what's called the Balfour Doctrine, which was where it was decided that since the Israeli people, the people of Israel, were traditionally from that area, and after the Holocaust, they decided they needed a place of their own. And this place where they'd always been and had come from was chosen. And that's where we ended up kind of with modern-day Israel, right? And this part of the immigration into the area, and it was a national home. You know, that was in 1948, by the way. And so now what we have is, is this divide between people who refer to themselves as Palestinians and people of the people of Israel. And Israel being a country, Palestine not being a country. But it's understandable, to be fair with them, that this a region, they've always identified themselves as Palestinians, never really had a country of Palestine. If you'll notice in some of these things that they'll be waving a flag around, the flag of, the flag of Palestine, since they've never been a nation state, has kind of the same significance as a Bronco's flag. You know, I mean, it's a uh, it's a symbol of an idea. <laughs> and so this whole idea that gets pushed out there as though the Palestinians were there living as some sort of coherent, unified people and country, and Israel was just carved itself out of out of their country, and now uh, they're essentially colonizing it, is a, it's a lot more... 
complicated than that and a lot less clear than they would have it. Plus, the area is much smaller than people think. Now, many of you out there may have been to Israel and know this, but Israel is small. And it is, uh, I looked this up recently, it's 290 miles long and 85 miles wide at its widest point. So 290 by 85. That's not very big, which means that with, uh, you know, the Gaza, which they gave up, I think, in 2009 to uh, its self-rule, and which turned out to be Hamas, uh, sticking right up into the country. And remember, the whole country's not very big, so the distances these guys have to travel, terrorists have to travel, not very far, to get to population centers, and it's sort of like they take one step, and, you know, they're pretty far into the country. So it's very dangerous. And you have Lebanon above them, which is where Hezbollah is at, another terrorist group that, uh, you know, hates a lot of people, particularly Israel. And you realize just how tenuous their situation is. 85 miles from their border to the sea. You'll hear the Palestinians out there. One of their sayings that they like to chant is, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, if you went from the river, the closest river along the border there, to the sea, that means there's no Israel. Israel's gone if that were to happen. So that, see, that, that's what the thing is. This isn't a question of trying to liberate their homeland, because that's really not a, a really correct way to look at it. And it's also not an idea that Israel will ever exist if these people get their way. There's not a middle ground here, folks. I mean, if you listen to what they say, Israel's just gone. That's how the state it's in. So there's not like you can agree with what they want. We'll be back. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We are here on the radio and the Internet and uh, perhaps the podcasting, talking to you folks today. And I hope that we gave you a little information in the last segment about you know, sort of the historical antecedents to what this whole mess in the Middle East is about. And, of course, let's not pretend that uh, it's simple. Uh, however, there are a few things that are simple. One, of course, is that Israel is in the right and Hamas is in the wrong. That's pretty simple. Hezbollah is in the wrong. Israel's in the right in that. And Israel has a right to exist as much as any of these other characters do. And the idea that, you know, they can go from the, uh, from the river to the sea uh, <laughs> and there be any Israel left is, of course, not true. And it gives you some idea of the whole philosophy here. There's nothing short of the complete annihilation of Israel that most of these terrorist groups, and certainly Iran, want. There's just nothing short of it. That's exactly what they want. They don't, they don't want any more land given up for peace or anything like that. We see what that's happened. Everything that the Israelis have given up over time that they've taken in one of some of the wars, like the 67 war, 73, uh, they've got nothing back out of it except trouble. So that's what's happening. And of course, we all know on Friday that they started pushing into Gaza. Now, once again, if you can imagine that Israel is only 85 miles at its widest point, you can imagine the size of the Gaza Strip. We're, it's not a huge area. So they're massing, I don't know, about 146,000 regular soldiers and uh, their own air power. 
they've got a fairly significant armor presence. They have a lot of tanks. And I think they've also got some howitzers that they're stationing for covering fire. Those of you who know such things know that oftentimes there is a uh, artillery bombardment of an area prior to deploying ground troops. So we'll see exactly how this all plays out. But I think what we're going to see is Gaza City pretty much knocked down. The sad thing about that is, and many of you probably heard this yesterday, that Israel tries to let people know that they're going to start blowing things up. They drop leaflets. They let pe- they tell people to get out of there. They try to tell all. There's like a million, I think, mil- 1.1 million people in Gaza, and which is going to be pretty crowded. It told them to go south because they're coming in to look for Hamas, and also they all oftentimes will do a uh, sort of a door knocker bomb, which is not really a bomb, but more like an extremely loud uh, firecracker. It's, it's a to let everybody know that bombardment is coming, right? So they'll drop that first before they start the bombardment. So unlike the rest of these uh, 11th century savages, they're not even savages, just 11th century. I'm trying to think of something for the radio. But anyway, that's kind of where their philosophy comes from. They really haven't progressed past the 11th century and not an attractive part of the 11th century, by the way. That being said, they apparently are good tunnel rats, because one of the problems is going to be when they press into Gaza. And I think I see why they're using armor, and they have a D9 cat that's a caterpillar uh, bulldozer that's all armored up. They call the teddy bear that they're probably going to use to push buildings over and push things aside. Because if you've ever seen pictures of Gaza City, or really any of the older cities in the Middle East, they're not laid out in a way that we really can wrap our head around. They have been growing at sort of a random pace and way for decades, hundreds of years in some of these cases. So the streets are winding. They're narrow. There is doorways everywhere. There's little balconies hanging out randomly from places. And you can imagine what that's going to be like if you're doing house-to-house insurgency work. It's extremely dangerous. And that's just if you're running into hostile fire. I mean, it says nothing about IEDs and booby traps and all this other stuff. That's So to some extent, I think we're going to see them just pushing it down. Now, Hamas, as I mentioned literally about their tunnel rat experience, has been busily building what they call uh, the Gaza Metro underground, tunnels underneath the city itself and all throughout it, and apparently some of them that cross into Israel. So they can just pop up uh, like gophers into Israel and spread their hate. But that's going to mean that a lot more casualties are going to be initially probably from civilian population, especially since even though the Israelis, and people know this, have been telling people to get out before they come through, Hamas has been telling them to stay. Because remember, if you think about this for a minute, What does Hamas really want out of this? I mean, obviously, they are, there's lunatics in there that want to hurt and maim, uh, Jews, particularly Israelis. But what does that get you? Where are they headed here? And they've, they have a terrible raid into 
Israel. They created a number of atrocities, and they dragged people back across the border. Well, dragging hostages back across is, of course, something that we understand. Uh, you try and put these hostages in places so maybe you won't be attacked or blown up, or the case may be. And also, we in the United States have established an idea that we're going to give them money to return these hostages. And when we do that, of course, what you get is more hostages. It's a, it's a terrible cycle. So you encourage them to take hostages when you do that. But they also want Israel to come into Gaza City. This is my view, and I think others too. They want destruction. They want there to be civilian casualties. They want to have horrific images that they make sure get out to the mainstream media, particularly in the United States, that seems to be inordinately on their side. So they purposely cite themselves. This is this is a double-edged kind of, well, not a double-edged, but it's a two-pronged thing. They appear to be perfectly happy to put themselves in areas that are traditionally thought of as being sort of off-limits, hospitals, near schools, you know, stuff like that, that they like to cite some of their rocket-launching areas and things like that because they know that the West will either hesitate to destroy them or they will get a massive propaganda surge out of the destruction. And it appears as though the purpose of this is to do just that. It is to force the media, why well, say force, <laughs> allow or, or cooperate with the media to begin to inflame the Middle East as much as possible. Now, how far that will go, we don't know, because the Hamas people like Hezbollah are an ISIS and a Taliban you know, all of these folks, uh, Al Qaeda. There's still probably there's some Al Qaeda running around, a few ISIS running around, maybe even. They all have this idea that they want the entire Middle East to rise up, and so in their minds, it's clear to me that they realize that if they get some propaganda value out of this, if they go and do something pretty terrible, and then they're retaliated against, they realize that the original butchery that they do is going to have a fairly short shelf life in Western media. This Western media has increasingly become anti-Israel, at least the mainstream parts. But the reprisal and the things that happen after the reprisal, well, now these things are going to be publicized widely, in which case they believe they'll achieve some benefit. I mean, who knows? The United States may send them some more humanitarian aid or some more groups of terrorists may decide to strike into Israel. And they like that. They like the destruction. They like the chaos. It's obvious. But also in their minds, if they just keep getting this propaganda out, then maybe there'll be some sort of rise up Syria, Lebanon, stuff like that. Maybe even Egypt in their mind. Uh, to start another war again, even even though they've had their uh, heads handed to them in every war against Israel so far, I think they imagined that might happen. So in their mind, there's not a big downside to this. This is all about uh, taking out their aggression and setting a propaganda situation up to try and get others going in the direction of war with Israel.
it's a terrible situation and it's a terrible philosophy and tactic, but it seems clear to me that's what's happening. And we're going to start seeing it very soon because as the Israelis move into Gaza, they're going to knock things down. Civilians who have been encouraged by Hamas not to leave, and some of them don't want to leave their homes. That's, we, you understand that in a, in a general way. But they've been encouraged not to leave. Then there's going to be civilian casualties. You just can't do it without that. It's not possible. This whole silly idea that some of these people put out there, like somehow you can only do surgical strikes on military targets, is not borne out by historical precedent or modern military theory. It's never been really the case. And especially when you have a group of people who are specifically locating their strong points near what would normally be off-limits or areas that you would try and avoid destruction to. So they're hoping to draw it. I mean, and to their mind, it either nobody do, nobody comes in and blows them up, which allows them to keep sending missiles or whatever else they're doing, or they do come in and they get great propaganda out of it. It's a sickening situation. All right, everybody, we're back here getting it right with Rick Wagner here on KZKGLN and a couple other things, and we are just being a barrel of monkeys today, aren't we, in terms of fun? Yeah. These are terrible topics. You know, I mean, I mean, our own politics are enough, but when you start looking around the world and say what's going on, it just increases that sort of uh, feeling of out of control. That's not very good grammar, but you, you have a feeling that everything is just losing its grounding, that we're in a time of crisis, as I've talked about before, this whole fourth turning thing in that book that I was pretty fascinated with. And it is really interesting that, you know, we reached one of these phases in our history where everything is turning upside down and there is a general change, good or bad. We don't know. There have been some of these events, turnings as the, as the Neil Howe likes to call them, that have turned out well, where there's been a lot of things going on. There's been a crisis and they've come out of it much better. I like to cite the crisis of the third century in Rome, where it really looked like they were going to head for some real problems, but they managed to recreate a few things, reorder things, and get really back on their feet. Others, not so fast, right? French Revolution, for instance. <laughs> they did get back on their feet, of course, with Napoleon, but it had nothing to do with what they thought it was going to be. And this is what happens, is that whenever they get these crisis and inflection points, some people think they know what's going to happen. Seldom are they correct. Dave Barry, the humorist, who I quote once in a while, has a great saying about this, and I may have, I may have quoted it before, but he said that when things are going badly and everyone is afraid, doesn't know what to do, someone will arise to take charge of the situation. Usually that person will be crazy. <laughs> How often in history do we see that? Now, we have a sort of a crisis situation in the United States, and look at our government. Do you think anybody that you see in the federal government is competent to really run anything you'd trust them with? Would you trust 
Pete Buttigieg to do anything, work on your car, go get some groceries for you, mow your yard. I mean, probably not. Anthony Blinken, you certainly wouldn't send out to do anything that requires a, uh, let's just say, a, a spinal column because he seems to be lacking one. We have a Secretary of Defense who doesn't seem very interested in military readiness. Just a lot of extraneous nonsense. And doesn't seem to be making any kind of case to the rest of the administration about why we need to do some very fundamental things. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe fill up the strategic oil reserve that Biden drew down to its lowest level in 20-some years so that he could try and keep gas prices from being too high in 2022. Doesn't fill that back up yet. Now, do we maybe need the strategic oil reserve? Well, we'd like to think we don't. It's really there for two purposes. One, some sort of natural problem, and and one that they were thinking about specifically when they were doing it is what if we had a disruption in our refinery process, hurricane, something like that, that really shrunk down the supply or the ability to get oil moved around. So that was one of them. The other one, of course, is strategic in the sense that we may need it to power vehicles in a wartime situation. Apparently that's not important. Right now, I know I keep saying this, but how many times did we hear that we're running short of ammunition and missiles because we've been sending to the Ukraine? Now we're going to be trying to send some of that stuff to Israel. What are we going to end up doing? Are we going to end up having our soldiers, uh, you know, drill with wooden guns or something here pretty soon? Uh, what happened to the the America First? Oh, I know what. Yeah, that's that's out now. Yeah, America First. That's yeah, that's that's passe. But we're stretched really very thin. I try and read the uh, some of the defense journals once in a while, and once you get past the puffery, which is to say, people who are trying to uh, sort of butter up their masters at Raytheon or in Congress, you see that there's real concern about our ability to respond to different places in the globe, places that we have recognized as being hotspots for a long time. Think now, we're shipping everything to the Ukraine, especially money, and yeah, ammunition, stuff like that. Now we have essentially a war going on in Israel. We're trying to do something with that. We have China, who is doing nothing but agitating on the uh, strait between them and Taiwan. And right now, by the way, I've seen some reports that during this conflagration in Israel, that once again, the Chinese have started to do some more provocative actions towards Taiwan. They've been flying and putting, I think, naval assets Across the midline, the midline was always this idea, but in the strait there between China and Taiwan, they've been crossing it, and they've been observing the kind of response they get. You guys know that one of the reasons that you fly into someone else's airspace or sail too close to their coast or all that kind of stuff is often to gauge their response, to see how long it takes them to respond, how they respond, where the assets that are responding to the incursion are coming from. This is all very valuable information. 
And if you keep doing it long enough, you get a really pretty good idea, not only how it's being done, but on the converse of that, what are the best ways to counter it? China's been doing a lot of that. And there's only so many ways that Taiwan can respond. So even if you're trying to change it up a little bit so they don't get as good a handle on your system as you would like, there's only so many turns of the screw that you can make before they've seen everything. So they've been doing that during this period. How are we going to be projecting any any force in these areas, any deterrent force? Let's say deterrent force. I don't think we have a real deterrent force anymore. I mean, not a significant one, because it's it doesn't seem as though we're committed to any particular response. We tend to try and have vague things said about other people's behavior. We have the don't do it. You know, that's, that's Biden talking about. If somebody wants to take advantage of this, don't do it. Really? Okay. Uh, I think Lloyd Austin also said that uh, the other day, you know, because he's, there's nothing if not mimic what the rest of the administration says. What is that supposed to mean? Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor that should not even be in government because of his past behaviors, uh, said that uh, there would be, I think, uh, drastic, severe, drastic consequences, something like that. Really? Well, by this point in time, given our history with allowing things to happen and not having even in a concrete idea what we'll do, that stuff means technically nothing. It is what some people used to call balloon gas. You know, it's just warm air. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make anybody stop because you, they hear it all the time and nothing happens. Now, am I saying that it'd be a good idea for us to just throw ourselves in World War III? No. But there are some things that we could do that were at least forceful and dynamic. I was thinking of uh, Reagan and uh, his line of uh, the line of death. Remember that with Libya about, you know, that they couldn't fly over it and this and that. I mean, we can do some things like that. Now, that is an escalation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I was thinking the other day when Hezbollah was starting to fire rockets and a few things into Israel from the other end of the country, which would be in the north, remembering, of course, the place is only 290 miles long, that if we might, if we were really interested, maybe someone would bring up the idea of saying, look, uh, this is the this is the DMZ as far as we're concerned at the top of Israel. Nobody's going to should be flying anything or shooting anything, or we're going to assist Israel in a response. I'm not even suggesting that's the best idea, but I mean, I was I brought to my mind. It's not easy. How much provocation can we take without responding before our whole life is provocation? Everybody's just trying to test us and to test us and test us. And every time it becomes more aggressive and pretty soon you will have an unfortunate situation and you're going to be in a very weak situation yourself as the United States because you have slowly backed away from everything. I don't pretend to have the answer about what you should do, but I do a pretty good idea about things you shouldn't do. And appeasement is one of them. It's never worked. Uh, we have an administration, especially when it comes with Iran, that makes Neville Chamberlain look like George Patton. Uh, the president and Blinken and the rest of the cronies up there won't even mention Iran. 
who's really behind all of this stuff in the Middle East. They're the problem. And of course they're funding it. I mean, what, 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 where's the money coming from from Hamas or the weaponry? These guys aren't, these guys don't, <laughs> this isn't a bunch of like independently wealthy guys out there that are, you know, buying all their own stuff. Of course it's coming from someplace like that. And of course we know it's coming from Iran. They pretty much tell you it's coming from Iran. So our stance on Iran has, has become very weak. It's very weakened since Trump left. Uh, almost all of the sort of safeguards that Trump tried to put in with some of the barrier, trade barriers and things like that have been undone by, you know, Biden. And they were terrible ones that were put into place, a terrible exchange under Biden slash Obama, Obama Biden, in terms of they were more than willing to deal with Iran. And then in a, in a way that was very unhealthy. And then Trump came in and stopped that. And then, you know, day one, week one, uh, Biden got, gets in and starts unwinding all of that. Why? Have they, have they become friendly all of a sudden? They sure don't sound like it. Have they changed some of their rhetoric? No. Have they indicated that they, uh, have seen the light in somehow and that, you know, they're willing to meet somebody halfway? No, that's certainly not the case. So what's the reason? Why become pro-Iran? Well, part of it was because they'd like to get some oil out of Iran because they won't let us do anything with it here. Despite the fact that oil taken out of the the Premium Basin uh, or several other places in the United States is much cleaner and the extraction for it is less disruptive to the climate that they claim to be so worried about and... But that doesn't seem to make any difference. We just as soon pay someone that hates us and hates our allies to send us dirty oil that's not as really the quality of the oil that we have ourselves and have them chug a lug down, you know, with a huge ship to the United States. I think there's a carbon footprint there. What do you think? So that, that kind of idiocy we've been engaging in is... It's hard to fathom, and it and it really derived from this thing I talk about: this minute by minute clinging to power. There's there's no idea of looking down the road. Where does this end? What houses will turn out? If it gets them to get to the next election and they get to stay in power, that's as far as these people are looking right now. That's very bad for us. But I wanted to also talk about something else that others haven't been talking about as much, and I, it's just really important. And I don't understand why we're not getting. China, because we were talking about China a minute ago, has really been increasing its economic leverage uh, in very strategic places around the world. Well, we've been worried about, you know, pregnant jumpsuits and uh, whether or not everybody's pronouns are, you know, in line, and especially the military, where, of course, that's important. Uh, These guys have been doing all sorts of things to exert influence. What they do is it's called... uh, by many, debt trap diplomacy. China lends money to some of these countries that in Africa and Central and South America that don't have a lot of it. And they lend it with high interest and short repayment periods because these people are not very economically astute. And they lend it usually for projects that sound very infrastructure. They lend them for bridges and roads and airports and these people that are signing up for the loans don't have any real idea how they're going to pay them back. 
but they want the roads and the bridges and this and that. Many of these places have very restive populations, and so if they can do something to keep them from throwing them out of power, they're willing to borrow the money to do it. Well, what happens then is China can use this debt that they have to pressure these countries to adopt policies that are favorable to China, and they have been doing it. Like, uh, like look, let's look at Africa. In 2017, Sri Lanka was forced to hand over a, a, a port, uh, and I want to, I hope if I can pronounce it, the Hamabatota port to China on a 98 year lease after it was unable to repay its debts. They also require, in most cases, that the African countries that they loan the money to, it's also taking place in Central America, by the way, use Chinese companies to build the infrastructure projects. That gives them a, a monopoly on the African infrastructure market and allows China to have control over the construction and operation of the projects. In Ethiopia, China funded the construction of a number of infrastructure projects, including the uh, Addis Ababa uh, Dejobi Railway, using Chinese companies. And they're going to owe a bunch of money, and the chances are they're not going to be able to pay it back. So they're going to have to do something. You know, also in, uh, I don't know why the, I'm, I'm tasked with this in my notes, but uh, it was a good example. I just can't pronounce it. China has funded the construction of ports and roads, in, and we mentioned one of them sort of, um, in Djibouti. D-J-I-B-O-U-T-I. And I couldn't, I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce it, but I'm not good enough at that to do so. And that's because that area is right on the strait uh, near the Red Sea, and the Gulf of Aden, which is a very important choke point as shipping comes to the Suez Canal and also their major points of uh, oil transfer and things like that. Not a coincidence. Angola, remember, remember Angola, remember uh, during the Reagan administration, Angola, you know, we talked a little about that too, uh, is one of the most heavily indebted countries in Africa. They owe China over $20 billion dollars. And in 2019, they had to hand over a number of their oil fields to Chinese companies in order to repay the debt. That was pretty handy to China. China is not shy about using oil and gas and coal to power their economy. So this money that they loaned them could not have been paid back by Angola. Big surprise. And so they had to hang, hand over control of some of their oil fields. In Kenya, they have a, a big debt with China as well. But back in 2018, they had to cancel a contract to the British, British company to build a new railway line and instead had to give the contract to a Chinese company because they owed a lot of money and they were having trouble paying it back. So they had to cooperate with China. Um, there's another uh, country that's very much in debt to them, and that's Zambia. And back in 2020, they had to default on their debt to China. And since then, China's taken control of the country's main airport and electric company. And, you know, they're, they're not just doing it in Africa. And they, they like Africa because there's a lot of strategic areas in Africa. And also, what does Africa have? Well, you can see it has these resources. Certainly it has some oil and all that kind of thing. But it also has a lot of the rare earth products, right, chromium, stuff like that, that we need in the production of uh, computer chips uh, or just in the manufacture of a lot of technological items. And they're getting control over them. And it isn't just there. I mean, Latin America and South America is pretty bad. I mean, I looked at a couple things here. If you look at Venezuela, uh, they owe China a 
about $60 billion, much of it's for their infrastructure stuff. And that, so they have a significant leverage over the Venezuelan government. Like, they're not bad enough already uh, to pressure uh, the government to adopt policies that are favorable to Chinese interests. Now, way back in 2010, when this started, really, uh, they were in Ecuador. And they let Ecuador, like $2.7 billion to finance the construction of uh, a hydroelectric dam. And apparently it's the largest one in Ecuador and provides 30% of the country's electricity. But it also has had a bunch of environmental and social impacts that they've complained about uh, down there to some extent anyway. But China doesn't care. And they've required Ecuador to repay the loan with oil. Once again, a significant leverage over the Ecuadorian economy. In Bolivia in 2017... Chinese lent Bolivia a billion dollars to finance the construction of a new railway between Santa Cruz and Montero. And that railway line, when it's done, is expected to boost trade between Bolivia and China. However, the railroad line has been criticized for its high cost, potential to increase Bolivia's dependence on China. No kidding. And they've required, the Chinese have required Bolivia to repay the loan with lithium. Of course, a key ingredient there in batteries for electric vehicles. So, what's going on? Well, while we're sitting here messing around with this culture war we seem to be engaged in, and some of these what would normally be ridiculous arguments that if you went if you went back, let's say you went back to two thousand and five. Let's just pick a weird number, and you said this is the kind of things we'd be arguing about. In 2023, I think people look look at you like you had, you know, your head screwed on wrong. Think how fast these things have come up. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an accident. I think that many people that don't have the best interest of the United States, and unfortunately, some of those who are in the government of the United States, are happy to see these things be disruptive. Some of them are just idiots. I can name a couple, but you already know who they are in government. They just think that this is the way to be. The others tend to be the Talibs, the this, the that. I, you know, what's the agenda there? How does a lot of these things help the United States of America? Many of the ideas that the squad, AOC and her compatriots, uh, promote, and Bernie Sanders, for that matter, some of the others. I was thinking of Gavin Newsom in California, who doesn't seem to have a very clear idea about what America is all about. How does any of that stuff help America? How does it help us be more effective and efficient in the world? How does it help our trade? How does it help our ability to defend ourselves? How does it help any of the big things that government is supposed to do? It sure doesn't seem to be doing any of them. So you wonder if, if that isn't some method to that madness that they figure, look, chaos is good. You know, that chaos allows us to remake things in, in the image that we uh, dreamily have of a socialist slash communist slash, you know, corporativist governmental structure in which we, of course, will sit at the top and uh, there'll be a planned economy for everybody else. It's like, how many projects have you seen for apartments and stuff anymore? What happened to the American dream of owning a house? I don't know. I'll let you guys think about that. Have a great weekend.